Welcome back to Half the Battle. I'm your host, as always, Daniel Levy, your guest co-host, Andrew Gombas. Today, we're going to be talking about UFC Jacksonville, Josh Emmett versus Ilya Taporia, and it's going down this Saturday night live at the Star Veterans Memorial Arena in Jacksonville, Florida. You got two... I want to say top five uh, featherweights going at it. Uh, Taporia just got into the rankings, and I mean, man, he's making a big splash, biggest test of his career uh, against a former title challenger in Josh Emmett, and questions will be answered. There will no longer be, is Taporia the real deal or not? We're going to find out Saturday night, Andrew. I'm looking forward to it, man. It should be a good card, especially for a fight night. No doubt about it. So as you all know, we're not going to waste any time. We're going to break down the whole card from the main event to the first prelim. A uh, little backstory. Actually, the last Jacksonville card, Andrew and I attended, and I actually got to meet you, some of your buddies, Lags, uh, Bo, had a great time. Um, saw Ian Gary fight um, Darion Weeks. Saw Peter Yan versus Aljo the second time. That one hurt my feelings. Um, but man, uh, every time they come to Jacksonville, it's action packed. We saw Hamza versus Gilbert Burns, and now we got this awesome card to look forward to, Andrew. Yeah, I mean, that was so much fun. Hopefully, we can do it again someday soon. But yeah, um, I was at the Jacksonville fights last year with you, and then the year before when Usman knocked out Masvidal, and the whole place just went dead silent. So, Jacksonville has delivered some great fights over the last few years. I'm expecting the same uh, on Saturday. Well, let's get right down to business, Andrew, because in the main event, in the featherweight division, we got Josh Emmett. He's 18-3, and taking on the undefeated Ilya Taporia, who was 13-0. and And currently, they got it. Ilya Taporia, minus 310. The comeback on Josh Emmett is plus 260. So, Andrew, one of the many reasons I called you on to be on the show is because you have a 100% hit rate on Ilya Taporia fights. And I do as well, but difference being is you've bet on him on a hundred percent of his fights, whereas I just bet him against Zalal and against uh, Damon Jackson, and then I didn't bet any of his fights ever again. You've gone to the well consistently, back and forth every single time, but now we're dealing with a minus three ten. The days of getting plus one sixty versus Yusuf Zalal, the days of getting minus two hundred versus Damon Jackson, the days of getting minus two hundred versus Ryan Hall—they're long gone. Is there value at minus three ten in this spot against the toughest test of his career? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, I'll revert back to the old saying about the worst part of any ride is when you have to get off. And I feel like I wrote it to the top. You know, like you mentioned, I've bet on Superior in every single one of his UFC fights from the start. Like you said, dog money against Alal, minus 200 against Damon Jackson. Um, I max bet him against Brian Hall. I was actually at that fight. I even laid the chalk against Jai Herbert. I was big against him on Bryce Mitchell. But, yeah, I feel like minus 300 is probably about right here, um, just based on the fact that there's some question marks about his cardio in over five rounds. Josh Emmett's tough. Um, he's durable. He's on the older side. He took a decent amount of damage, uh, especially to the body in his last fight. I think Tapiria is the crisper boxer. I think he's better jujitsu. Um, I, I just think he's a better fighter. But when I'm – Laying three to one, I really need to see some like massive discrepancies, which I don't really feel are here, um, especially given the cardio dynamic of five rounds. I'm not saying that Taperia does have bad cardio by any means, but when it's your first time in a five rounder and you're minus 300, like you're already that's already a lot of winning built into that 75% implied. So, I, to me, the line feels about right. I tend to think Taperia is gonna 
outbox him, finish him in the mid-late rounds. But, yeah, he's my pick, but I, I have no bet on this fight. Uh, curious to hear your opinion. Yeah, I mean, listen, Taporia is 12 years younger than Emmett, and it's crazy to think about Emmett being 39, just fought for a title, and we talk about it often. You know, it's every fighter's dream to be a world champion, and when you finally make it to that pinnacle and you fall short, I mean, more often than not, they kind of have a letdown performance the following time. You saw it recently with Gilbert Burns. You've seen it just throughout the years so many times. There's plenty of examples. And, you know, Josh Emmett, I mean, not only is he getting up there, I mean, he's closer to 40 than he is to 35. Like, we're really at the end. But look, in this guy's prime, I mean, we're dealing with a guy who set the record, Andrew, for most knockdowns in featherweight history. I mean, whether we're talking about when he went out there against Felipe Aranches, knocked him down four times in one fight, and props to Felipe for not getting finished, the brutal Ricardo Lamas knockout, even against Jeremy, where he got slept, he still dropped Jeremy in that first round, the jo- uh, the Michael Johnson disgusting knockout, drops Mirsad Bektik with a jab, two knockdowns against Shane Burgos, one knockdown against uh, Dan Ige. Didn't knock down Cater, but landed over 100 significant strikes against Cater. And then the Yair fight was kind of where it all came crashing down. And honestly, it seemed to me like that Calvin Cater fight was the peak for Josh Emmett. I mean, a lot of some people thought he didn't win that fight. I actually kind of thought he won it. Um, I thought that Cater was a big gun shy, um, rightfully so, due to the power coming back at him. I mean... This dude, Emmett, can crack. That We got to give him that. And he does have the wrestling background. I'm not as worried about that here. The only thing I'm worried about is this dude's left hook and this dude's overhand right. That's literally all I'm worried about. Um, as far as cardio concerns, I mean, the only example we really have of Taporia fading was when he took a fight against Zalal on, like, a week notice and whooped his ass for two straight rounds and kind of, you know, played it safe in the third round. Like people make it seem like he was on his way out, like two more rounds and to poor and uh, Zalal was going to finish him. And that's complete horseshit, Andrew. hundred percent. And yeah, um, I mean, that, another, that was an overblown narrative for sure. Like I thought superior won the third round too, even though like he was a little bit gassed at the end. He also took that, like you said, he took that fight on short notice and he was just getting over COVID too. And he took the fight. So like, I kind of give him an ex- a pass for that one. Um, but yeah, and then the other, the, real quick, just the one Emmett fight I wanted to mention, which was just a sick performance. Remember when he blew his knee out in like the first round against Shane Burgos, and then like went on to win like a fifteen minute. I remember watching that, just like holy shit, this guy, this guy is built different. He really is. He's got that dog in him, and I mean, after that fight, he goes back out there. Um, over a year later, you saw what he did against Dan Ige. It was a close fight, but like, you know, after a knee surgery against Ige, Ige might not win every fight, but Ige has got that dog in him and Ige will be there with every single guy he fights. He might lose, but he's going to make it the whole 15 or the whole 25 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then the, like I said, the cater fight, I felt like that was the pinnacle. That was the final version of Josh Emmett. Another interesting thing I want to bring to the table because someone brought up the Jai Herbert fight. And while I think it's a legitimate point, we're not going to sit here and act like that didn't happen. Yes, he got dropped by Jai Herbert. And and honestly, uh, Rick the Ruler, that's the guy that um, that made the comment. I'll pull it up right here. Rick, that's not the only time that Taporia has been dropped. In Taporia's fight right before his UFC debut, he got dropped as well in a similar fashion how he did the, uh, against Herbert. But he showed he's got that heart. He showed he's got that dog. He showed that you have to put this guy out 
to beat him. You're not dropping him is not enough. Putting him in a deep submission attempt is not enough. You must finish Ilya Taporia to beat him. And the reason that I think the Jai Herbert fight is important to bring up is because at the time when it happened, I was kind of like, well, you know, man, he's getting dropped as a minus 500 favorite. You know, what the hell? But like, dude, let's put context on it. That was up a weight class. And Jai Herbert is six foot one and fights long. Like, and, and I'm glad we're bringing this up now because this is the first time I believe in Taporia's UFC career, Andrew. He's going to have a height advantage over someone. I've never seen Taporia be the taller man, so it's actually kind of nice for him. And Emmett, yeah, he's got a one-inch reach advantage. Basically, to me, the reaches are neutralized here. But finally, Taporia is going to be the taller man, and that's going to be really interesting here. So really, the only thing I'm worried about are the hooks of Emmett. Big left hook, big overhand right, an uppercut, whatever. I'm not worried about his wrestling. Like I think what people fail to realize is that Taporia does have black belt level Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and Taporia... Although he's, um, you know, got some some residency, I guess, in Georgia, not my Georgia, you know, Georgia next to Russia. He's got a bit of that kind of like Russian wrestling style. And I don't want to be disrespectful by calling it Russian. Okay, Georgian wrestling style, whatever. You know exactly what I'm trying to say. Yeah. This guy can wrestle too. Like just because they see that 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 flag from Spain doesn't mean that this is like Joel Alvarez where he can't where he has a zero percent uh, takedown defense. Um, but you know what he does have from Spain? He's got that Spanish heart. Taporia is an absolute dog. If I was in a bar fight, I'd want him and his 30 fucking uh, crew entourage on my side. So I think that Taporia can knock out Emmett. I think he can pick apart Emmett. And this is the controversial one. Don't be surprised if he hits a takedown on Josh Emmett either. I agree 100%. I mean, especially late if he's like, Mixing it up with the grappling, um, he kind of has Emmett a little worried about the striking. If they had a pure wrestling match, I'm not saying that Tapiria would take him down, but when when you're not really seeing it coming, when you're so when you're getting beat up on the feet, when you're getting hit to the body, and then all of a sudden someone's in on your legs, it's a lot different. So I, I agree with that 100. percent And then the last thing I want to point out to is because I guess the point I'm trying to make here is I think that Tapiria is the more well-rounded, more versatile guy because because people are just looking at it as two short guys that throw big bombs. And sure, they do throw big bombs, but there's a lot more nuances in the game of Tapiria. He's got a nasty choke game too. Dars, Anaconda, Guillotine. And someone actually on Twitter just posted a little clip of something he did to Zalal where he had that guillotine on Zalal. Zalal tries to get up and just this little clip of Taporia stepping on the foot of Zalal to prevent him from getting back up. I actually literally just sent that to my professor. I was like, dude, look at this little, like, this little trick, this little nuance. I'm going to add that to my game. So, yeah, I think that, look, no one's exempt from that first L, of course, but what we've seen from Taporia is... He has overcome adversity. He has been tested. It's not someone who we don't know how they're going to react to getting hit. We don't know how they're going to react to gassing out. He's passed all these tests. He's crushed the grapes. Now I think he drinks the wine. I'm going Ilya Tapura here to get this big win. I like that saying a lot. It's funny. So before we move on to the co-main event, just got a comment here from Justin T. He said, what up, guys? Just got my first stripe on my white belt. Thanks for encouraging me to get started, Dan. Hey, that's that that that's fucking awesome, man. Just keep going. It's a big journey, and you just got to show up every single day. Whenever people ask me what do I need to work on, I mean, I might tell them certain things, but really, all I tell them is keep showing up. That's literally all it is. Keep showing up. And I saw someone actually make a post about how 
that's the wrong attitude to say keep showing up because that means that you might be half asking it. And I disagree, man. I think you need to show up even on your worst day and, and just try your best. You know, like this is this is a marathon, not a sprint, literally. Like even as a purple belt myself, I'm still getting my ass kicked every single day, still getting pushed to the limit. So that's all it takes, Justin. So I'm glad to hear you're on that journey. I mean, Andrew can attest to it as a wrestler. I mean, you've you've wrestled over 100 matches and it never got any easier. You know, you just keep showing up. Yeah, probably over a thousand or even more than that, actually. But yeah, exactly. They um, there's a saying that just showing up is half the battle. Get it? Half the battle theme of this podcast. Yeah, show up, and um, obviously once you're there, you do your best. But just showing up is half the battle. So, congrats. Yeah, and just one more thing, I do want to give Josh Emmett credit for this because I'd be remiss if I left this out. So. I said I was most worried about the hooks, and I am, of course. But for a guy that's like, you know, a short, stocky bomber, he does have good output, man. I mean, the Shane Burgos fight, 127 significant strikes, and we're including two knockdowns. We're including a takedown. The the Cater fight, over 100 significant strikes. So it's not like a Woodley situation where he's just going to back himself into the fence, do nothing, and pray for that one overhand right. Yeah. Um, this dude uh, will actually put it out there. So Teporia will be tested in this spot, but it's one we think he can pass. 100%. So co-main event of the evening in the women's flyweight division, we got Amanda Hebosh. She's 11-3, and three, taking on Macy Barber, who's 12-2. and two. And currently they got it. This is interesting. Amanda Hebosh, minus 200. The comeback on Macy Barber is plus 170. So, Andrew, the reason I say it's interesting is because, look, I think you and I can agree Amanda Hebosh is the more technically sound fighter here. Honestly, everywhere the fight goes. But Macy Barber brings a unique quality to the table. I'm not talking about the air punching. <laughs> I'm talking about when she actually does connect. Um, there's more firepower than the average women's fighter. There, we've actually seen her get standing TKOs. We've seen her drop women before. She's a physical, she's a physical young lady. So, do you kind of view it more? At, do you kind of favor more just the technical prowess of Amanda Hibosh? You know, black belt in jujitsu, striking is fundamentally sound, or is it just Macy Barber kind of brooding it up? And before you answer. The big downfall of Rebos that has always cost her is, which is kind of a unique downfall in women's MMA, she doesn't have the best chin. Whether we're talking about Pollyanna Vienna knocking her out on the regional scene in the first round, whether we're talking about uh, Marina Rodriguez knocking her out, or whether we're talking about Verna Janjirdoba, uh wobbling her, there's been multiple instances we know Macy can crack. What do you think? Yeah, so I think the biggest biggest discrepancy in this fight is the grappling i think macy barber getting taken down five times by andrea lee was very telling because having andrea lee on top of you and having amanda hebos on top of you are two totally different beasts like i think if rebos hebos i don't know how to say i'm from american so i'll say rebos rebos gets on top she i don't think barber's getting back up like i I think a takedown is probably the rounds um i actually think rebos could Suburb from top position like i don't think macy barber is anything off of her back really just the main concern is what you mentioned like on the feet barber does have a lot of power for that division and rebus i'm not in love with her defensive um her striking defense so i think rebus definitely justified favor here i actually even lean here at this current price but i think um she's 
liable to get cracked. I just don't think she's going to be able to keep this fight upright for too. I, I just don't think the barber's going to be able to keep this fight upright for too long. So I, I think Rebus gets it done. Wouldn't be surprised if she finishes her on the mat. Yeah, I was actually watching the um, the Barber and Lee fight when it happened. I was at like a concert, but it was before the concert started, so I was like eating, you know, and uh, I was watching it on my phone, and I was convinced Lee won that fight. When they raised Barber's hand, I was like, oh, my God. And it was crazy. Was It was in Texas. You'd think the chick with the cowboy hat, you know, uh, the, the Southern girl was going to get the, the dub, and nope. Uh, so here, I mean, listen, man, if you hopped in on that minus 145, you did your job. Now it's minus 200. Now I think it shifts to that dogger pass situation. Um, but you know what you know what you're getting yourself into. I mean, if Macy Barber gets held down for two of the three rounds, you got no one to blame but yourself. But Macy Barber is resilient. I mean, she actually won a round against the current champ, um, Alexa Grasso, in that third round. And um, I'm just very curious if she can get off some hard shots on Hebas. How does Hebas respond to that? Uh, so physicality, power goes to Macy, and just technical acumen. And just smarts goes to Hebosh. So it makes it a great fight. Pure pick Hebosh. But I think at plus 170, it's dogger pass. Like I said, you got in minus 145. You did your job. But, you know, well, I mean, that's a big line move. So now I think it makes it a little bit different. Um, and a lot of these women's fights have been very, very close. Even Hebosh fights have been split decisions, man. Can I just say something like super like random? But of funny? course. I've never bet a Macy Barber fight before. Like for whatever reason, there's just some fighters I have a great read on and some that I don't. I've like really never been able to bet her fights properly. Like I or not not even properly. I've never bet her fights at all. Like I just look through my record, never bet on her, never bet against her, never bet an over under in one of her fights. Like to me to me, it's just every single time it's been a pass. And this is like the first time, especially at that early line, like you mentioned, like minus one forty, minus one fifty. Like I definitely like felt strongly enough for a rebus bet at that spot. And that's like the first time in her entire UFC career where like I genuinely felt somewhat passionately about taking a side. Cause up to this point, it's just been in one ear out the other for me when I'm taking in the information for her fights. So I, I found her pretty hard to pretty hard to cap in the past. Sorry, I misheard you. Did you, are you saying you got in on that minus one forty five? Yeah, I was able. I was able to get some. I, I didn't like track it or tip it or anything. I was able to just grab. I, I saw it was moving, and so I was able to just pick up a. Oh, you mean up. you're not out here posting lines that haven't been available in uh, in multiple days or weeks? Yeah, you mean, not, you like mean, our, <laughs> not like our friend. Um, you, you mean you, his name, but. you mean you're actually out here playing honestly, Matt? Well, it's surprising. It's surprising <laughs> if some may find that. Uh, <laughs> I am, in fact, doing things the right way. He's playing the game the right way, you guys. So, featured bout in the heavyweight division, we got Justin Taffa, 6-3, and three, taking on Austin Lane, who was 12-3. And, and currently, they got it. Justin Taffa, minus 180. The comeback on Austin Lane is plus 155. Look, you got to give both these guys a lot of credit. I mean, Taffa came into the UFC so green, what, 3-0, and 3-1. Oh, and one. Basically, people thought he had zero business there. And, I mean, he's been... You know, he's taking his setbacks. He's gotten back up on the horse. And what he brings to the table is he kind of has got that old school Mark Hunt um, style, man. I mean, kind of shorter for a heavyweight, big explosive left hooks in the clinch, breaks off with big elbows. You see the size of his legs. You know, those leg kicks are on point. And when he closes the distance, I mean, 
He's got a knack for that walk-off knockout. And when you're talking about a guy like Austin Lane, I got to give him a lot of credit, man, because you know you know how we were talking about how Taffa came to the UFC like 3-0. and uh, This dude came in a contender series 4-0, fought Greg Hardy, got knocked out in under a minute, goes back to the regional scene, gets knocked out again his very next fight. And he could have just been like, you know what, this shit ain't for me. But since that point, I mean, he's gone on a nice little streak, man. I mean, he's won... Um, eight of his last nine now granted the one loss he did get stopped as well so we know he is susceptible to being to being clipped but this is a big boy man i mean six foot six he's got the 80 inch reach so clearly going to be the longer man here and more experience as far as mma but not more experience inside the ufc's octagon also beat juan adams but it took him until the fourth round to do it um but uh, that being said man do you have pause when you see the minus you know, next to a guy like Taffa in a fight like this with such volatility, you know, either guy could hit the deck or do you kind of favor his UFC experience here and think this is the caliber opponent that he can starch early. You could have stopped right after you said, do you take, do you pause after seeing a minus next to Justin Taffa? Cause the answer is yes. I just not in the business of laying chalk on him pretty much ever, but I am, I do think he's going to win this fight. You mentioned he's at a, significant reach disadvantage here he's uh austin lane 80 inch reach justin top 74 Tafa, the younger fighter though he's definitely the bigger hitter so i expect him to clip lane at some point i just it's tough laying chalk on him like i said he has no wrestling upside i actually think if anyone's gonna mix it in takedowns here it's probably lane and um just in terms of a minute winner i'm not in love with Tafa, but i do think like when i see this fight playing out in my head i do think he ends up hitting him fresh on the chin at some point so i'm picking taffa but it's probably my um least least strong conviction on the entire card you know and interestingly enough he opened minus 220 so uh you know there was some confidence on him uh, in vegas but look a little you know line margins have tightened up a little bit and for the reasons we mentioned that heavyweight volatility i also do lean towards taffa but you can't sit here look me in the eye with a straight face and act surprised if you know either guy gets clipped in a spot like yeah. this um even taffa who's been paying his dues in the ufc he's still super green he still had less than 10 pro fights andrew so you know you're going to be seeing these leaps every single fight but in a division like this you know sometimes you flip a coin and if we're talking in coin flipping terms then you got to take the plus 155 on lane but i i just don't know i'm passing on this one and i'm going to pick taffa as well now, next up in the featherweight division, we got an absolute banger. We got David Onama. He's 10 and 2, taking on Gabriel Santos, who's 10 and 1. Currently, they got it. Gabriel Santos minus 230. The comeback on Onama is plus 195. The first thing I'm going to ask you about is your opinion on the odds. But before I do that, I've had a good history with David Onama, man. I mean, when he so he makes his debut against Mason Jones. And at the time, I don't know if y'all remember, Mason Jones was a hyped prospect. Like it's crazy how things panned out, but when he first came into the UFC, people were talking like this guy's a future top 15 guy. Um, and him and Onama had this absolute war where it was like, look, Onama didn't get his arm raised, but he showed he's someone we want to watch. We're going to pay attention and see what he does going forward. And I actually bet him um, in the Gabriel Benitez fight, his very next fight, I think it was minus 150-ish, something like that. And it was like very, uh, it was like a hot take on Twitter at the time. Um, apparently, Apparently, he had zero business being favored over Gabriel, which wasn't the case. And then, so I bet him there. And then in the Landwehr fight, I bet Landwehr like plus 270. And my explanation was, 
if you can get me past this first round without getting knocked out, you're going to take over this fight. And I think a similar thing um, can happen here. Only difference is I think Gabriel is a lot more technically sound than uh, Nate Landwehr. I think he's got more ways to win. And that's no disrespect to Nate the Train, who we all love. I mean, I, I, I shed a tear when he lost to Ige. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? No, but uh, if you want to see an incredible comeback, if you want to see what that true dog is, Go on Fight Pass and pull up that fight between Gabriel Santos and Marcio Barboza. I mean, these two went life and death in a way. And, I mean, if you want to see what kind of heart that Gabriel has coming into the UFC and what kind of man he is, just pull up that fight. I mean, that's all I had to see to know that, like, this dude, I mean, he's a champ. And then his next fight, he won the belt in LFA. And you win that LFA belt, you're ready for the UFC more often than not. Goes in there in the debut against Leron Murphy. And I thought, you know, they had an honest three-round fight. Basically, if you can go 50-50 with Leron Murphy, you showed me exactly where you are. Um, had that fight not been in England, who knows how they would have scored it. But I'm not going to be one to cry robbery. But what I will say is the guy performed. Win, lose, or draw, he performed like a true warrior. I like everything about this kid. So Onama, you know, physical freak, athletic specimen, and that's not to discredit his skill set, you know, training at Factory X, you know, um, he's been doing his thing. But I think that Onama has to has to badly compromise Santos here early. He has to knock him out because the longer this fight goes, I think that Gabriel can win on the feet or on the mat. And I think that's what he's going to do. But back to my opening remarks, Andrew, minus 230, minus 230, you know, and he interestingly enough you open plus 235 so vegas was saying they thought onama was the side um line flipped but minus 230 is that a bit too much it is for me yeah so it's one of those fights where like just from all over the place i'm annoyed because i felt like i was lower on onama than the market was leading up to this fight and i never got the chance to make money betting against him i ended up passing the made the train fight which obviously bit me in the ass but just from like a pure – like the way I read the market and the way I bet, like this fight is dog or pass for me. Like no, no matter what I see, unless I see something like insanely glaring on the tape. Like Onama going from a minus 350 favorite against Nate the Train to a plus 200 underdog against Gabriel Santos. When Gabriel Santos was a plus 200 underdog against Lerone Murphy and now is the minus whatever um, – what is he right now? Minus 230 favorite – against Onama like from a pure market perspective like I could only bet Onama when I did do the tape I I, again I see the same thing I always see with Onama like he's very athletic he hits hard but just defensively he's so liable I think Santos has grappling upside here Um, and Onama's been taken down a bunch but not really by any besides Landwehr I guess no one really like dangerous on the mat like Jones was kind of taking him down and he was getting up and he was taking him down and he was getting up. I think if Santos gets his back, he has a shot to finish him. I think on the feet, I don't like Santos defensively either. I, I kind of like the under in this fight. I haven't played it yet, but I do think this fight finishes like probably a, a marginally more than it does um, go the distance. So from a betting perspective, I, I lean under. I, I haven't pulled the trigger on it yet, but I do lean the under. I do think both these guys being so defensively, void on the feet makes for a lot of finishing opportunity especially given adding the fact that santos has such a grappling discrepancy on the ground um i'm picking santos to get the win i'm not very confident it's onama or pass from a betting perspective 
And you're talking about under two and a half, not one mm-hmm. and a half, because they got both options. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm looking at under two and a half, minus one twenty five ish. Got you, but got you. It, it's not not official yet per se. Right. Well, pure pick for me is Santos. Um, but just not interested at that price. Now, next up in the middleweight division, we got a matchup between Brendan Allen, who's twenty one and five, taking on Bruno Blindado Silva, who's twenty three and eight. And currently, they got it. Brendan Allen, minus 180. The comeback on Bruno Blindado, plus 155. So I've been on both these guys in their last two fights at dog odds. You know, dog odds on Brendan against Muniz, like plus 180-something. And then Bruno, exact same price, plus 155 against Tavares. And they both showed out. Now, here's my kind of narrative talk on on this matchup. Um, Because, like, you know, Brendan Allen should be higher ranked. Brendan Allen... You know, like if you can follow his big bros game plan, uh, Gerald Mearshart, that's like his like idol. You're like the younger, fresher Gerald Mearshart. You know, you got a big path there. My, my only thing is this, man. Brendan Allen had a main event against Jack Hermanson. Like you just beat Muniz. You earned your spot against that top 10 guy um, in a main event. And that's something that you're going to get up for. I mean, a main event against a top 10 guy. This is the opportunity of a lifetime. That gets taken away from you, and now you got one of the most dangerous knockout artists um, in the middleweight division, a guy that has nothing to lose, a fight where you don't gain much here, man. I mean, you got a lot to lose here. Like you, like I said, you just had a Jack Hermanson main event, dude, and you didn't wait for him to, you know, to heal up or whatever, which I respect. Brandon Allen's a true fighter, and fighters are going to fight, so... You know, tip my cap, but I'm just saying that's a very dangerous fight for him to take because he loses this and all that momentum he had coming off the Muniz fight, getting a Hermanson main event booking, that all goes out the window here. Bruno knocks him out, Andrew. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you're saying. I, Brendan Allen's one of those guys. I feel like he's had an underrated career in the UFC. I think he's like nine and two in in the UFC. He beat. Um, Aaron Jeffrey on the contender series, which that win aged pretty well. Jeffrey's doing decent in Bellator. Like wins over guys like Kevin Holland, Kyle, Kyle Dawkins, um, Andre Muniz. Like his losses are to Strickland and Chris Curtis, who are like very respectable losses. I feel like he's, he's had a good run in the UFC. Um, I think he's the more he's better technically here, but Bruno Silva has the equalizer, which is his power. Um, his run in the UFC, I feel like it's a little bit overrated. I mean, his losses aren't bad. Obviously, Alex Pereira, former champ, and GM3 is GM3. But, like, his wins really haven't aged well. Jordan Wright, Andrew Sanchez, Wellington Terman, who's also on this card. Uh, Brad Tavares, his best win. Um, and I was going to say that you are um, – you have a good history of betting on Bruno Silva. I was going to say even before you pointed that out, but I remember um, you've cashed on him a few times. I think Allen is the justified favorite. Like, I think he could get on top here. I think on the feet, he probably wins minutes. But I, I just don't want to lay that kind of chalk when Bruno Silva just has that great equalizer, knockout power. I'm fine passing this fight, and uh, I'm picking Brendan Allen to get it done. Yeah, and, you know, this is a thing we talk about with, with Bruno all the time. You know, coming into the UFC, he had vast experience. I mean, there's a guy that went over to Russia, won belts there, and wasn't fighting, you know, some cans either. Alexander Shlomenko, the former multiple-time Bellator champ, like a Russian legend. Artem Frolov, not Artem Lobov, Artem Frolov, who was like 11-0 at the time, and they had an absolute war that ended in the fourth round. So Bruno Blinato's battle-tested, man. Um, and also, 
I'm not going to make excuses for the Mershart fight because I think the Mershart fight is um, relevant just in the sense that Brendan Allen has a similar style uh, to, to Mershart, just kind of like the younger, you know, the protege, right? Like like the the new school Gerald Mershart, a little bit faster. Um, just, yeah, you, you already know where I'm going with this. Like, he's just a better Gerald Mershart, um, a Gerald Mershart that could potentially make it to the top 10. Um, so it's like... But it's just back to the narrative, and and I hate always talking about narratives, but this is an important one. This is a letdown spot here for Brendan Allen, and that, that's what I'm concerned about. Like, dude, you had the division at the palm of your hand with that Jack Hermanson main event. You win that fight, you might be in the top five. You might be one fight away from a title shot. Now you're taking a dangerous, unranked guy who's got nothing to lose and Brendan Allen's been knocked out before in the UFC. Like you mentioned, the, the Strickland and the Curtis fights. Um, Blindado has a long history of knocking out very respectable and notable opponents, not just Tavares, the Russians I mentioned as well, even his early UFC career, the way he did Wellington Termon, the way he did Andrew Sanchez. Um, yeah, so if, if Brendan Allen, because like the thing with Brendan is, I think it's mental with him. Like when he's... Like, I don't know if you remember, like, it's easy to just talk about the knockouts, but like when he fought Chris Curtis, guess who was in Chris Curtis's corner? Sean Strickland. Guess what Sean Strickland does? He talks shit. Guess who was talking shit to Brendan Allen throughout the entire fight? So as a result, Brendan Allen's head's not even the fight. He's like talking to the corner while the fight's going on. Like, so, you know, I felt like his head wasn't there, not to make excuses for him, but I'm just saying it's, I think it's, he's a guy that you can mess with mentally. Now, luckily there's a language barrier here and you won't have Sean Strickland in the corner to talk all kinds of crazy shit. Like anytime Brendan Allen did something to Chris Curtis, Sean Strickland would immediately be like, Oh, he's got nothing for you. Like, or like, Oh, that's all he's got. Or he doesn't like that. He doesn't like that, Chris, you know, like, so like just messing with his head a little bit. Um, here it's going to be the Brazilians in the corner. So they're going to be like, Hey, you know, and all that. But, um, look, all bullshit aside, Brendan Allen is the more skilled guy here. He should be favored, but I don't see any value at the minus 180. It's a dangerous fight for him. It's a possible letdown spot. So I think this is a dog or pass situation. Am I willing to take the shot? I don't know, but, uh, I'm, I'm going to pick Brendan, but I hate this price and I hate this fight for him. Yeah. I agree. Can you highlight that? comment really quick just so i could say something do we really have to <laughs> bury this guy right now live on a on a wednesday afternoon all right you're right go to the next fight because <laughs> the, the th if you had something funny to say i had something really funny to say and i don't know <laughs> if i want to make someone cry today so we'll do hey we're just grateful you're here checking out the show man so thank you very much now next up in the welterweight division we got a matchup between neil magny he's 27 and 10 taking on Phil Rowe, who's 10 and three. Currently, they got it. Neil Magny, minus 160. The comeback on Phil Rowe is plus 140. So, Andrew, it opened a minus 110 pick -em, and, you know, Magny got a little steamed here. Um, people are saying this is going to be an easy fight for him. What, what, what's your opinion? Yeah, I, I think I was probably behind some of that Magny steam. I, I like him a good amount here. Um, just the difference in strength of schedule has been crazy between the two of those. Like, I don't really fault Magny for getting submitted by Gilbert Burns. Like Burns would do the exact same thing to um, to Phil Rowe. And this is the first fight in the UFC. I'm pretty sure that Rowe's facing someone with the same dimensions as him. And when I say dimensions, I mean the same height and reach. Like I don't know, man. That like the Nico Price fight. I thought they 
both like didn't look good for lack of a better term. It was an ugly fight. I think Nico Price looked very past his prime. Um, Phil Rowe, I think his his wrestling defense in particular, very suspect. I think Magny can top time him here. Um, I mean, he was getting taken down and held down by Jason Witt, even Orion Kose, like guys who just are nowhere near the level of Neil Magny. And I feel like Neil Magny is one of those guys, he does his job against the guys he's supposed to beat. Like you very rarely look at a Neil Magny fight and say, okay, he was supposed to beat this guy and lost. Like his losses are to Gilbert Burns, who's a former title challenger, Shavkat Rachmanov, who people are calling the next big thing at 170 pounds. Um, Michael Chiesa, who's just a phenomenal grappler. And like, you, you can even keep going back to like 2016, 17, 18. It's like RDA, Santiago Ponce But when he fights these guys like, um, like Anthony Rocco Martin, Lee Jingliang, Robbie Lawler, Max Griffin, D-Rod, like he beats that tier. Like he beats that mid tier and even upper mid tier he has wins against. Like I would even say that like you could call D-Rod and Jeff Neal guys that are like upper, like, closer to the upper tier than they are to the middle tier. But I just don't think Phil Rowe is that category. Rowe, good boxer, but I, I think I'm, – I'm not sold on his cardio. I don't think his wrestling is good at all. I think Magny is going to get it done. I think he should be even wider than what the current odds imply. This is going to be our first head-to-head on the night. And, you know, I, I feel uncomfortable about it because this year you've been crushing me on the head-to-heads. Like, this year you've been owning my ass. Um, I was due, bro. I was due. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, nah, but, uh, I mean, here's my thing. It's like you mentioned such a good point earlier. Like, when was the last time that Neil Magny had a reach disadvantage? Never. Probably never, yeah. When's the last time Neil Magny was a shorter man? Never. And, I, and I'm not saying that's the reason Phil Rowe's going to win. I'm, I'm, I'm just bringing up some things because, like, normally uh, – I, I think they're the same, though, for height and reach. I think they both are 6'3", 80-inch reach. I'm not I'm mistaken, but that's what the UFC site says. Um, yeah, it actually does have them. But I thought – because I heard this interview with uh, Phil Rowe talking about how on Contender Series, um, so they had him actually, like – you know, you know how they, they measure people's reaches and their heights and all that shit on contender series, yeah. right? So he's got an old school boxing coach, and his boxing coach told him to actually not extend his arms all the way so that they wouldn't give out what his reach was. Some old boxing shit. Um, so he's like, actually, my reach is like 82 to 84. Um, oh wow. Yeah, yeah. So he, he's saying he wasn't really extending his arms all the way when they measured it because he didn't want to give out, you know the sauce or whatever the fuck, but you know, it's their, it's their little boxing thing. Um, yeah. Uh, so here's the thing with Phil Rowe. I actually sparred Phil Rowe like five years ago and thank you, Phil Rowe for not murdering me. I'm still alive to, to speak about it to this day. Um, so like, this is a dude that's been training, you know, at fusion XL, uh, under Julian Williams, who Julian Williams is a real badass, a serious black belt, a dude that went like what 13 and one in MMA. But the only reason he didn't get signed to the UFC was because he was like 37 years old. So they just weren't looking to sign him, but dude beat dudes that are currently in the UFC. Like Julian Williams has been around the block and he's an underrated coach. And, you know, Phil's working with guys like that with Rodolfo Vieira, with Jacare, Mike Perry, um, Mike Davis, um, Lucas Alexander, the kid that beat Steven Peterson. So, so they got a nice little crew. Oh, yeah. Uh, Cedricuez Duma did a little uh, camp with them this time. So, so they got some bodies in the gym. Um, but a- as far as breaking down this, this matchup, the issue I've had with all these 
you know, last few Magni fights is that these guys are so like shell shocked by the the distance and the range of Neil Magni that they fight uncharacteristic. Like Robbie Lawler, what's Robbie Lawler known for? Robbie Lawler is known for being one of the most devastating knockout artists in the history of the sport. What does Robbie Lawler do when he goes in there with Neil Magny? Tries to tie up with him and wrestle with him, gasses himself out doing so right away. Li Jing Liang, one of the heaviest hitters in welterweight history, one of the most accomplished knockout artists in welterweight history. What does he do when he fights Neil Magny? I don't get it, but he goes right into the clinch gases out right away and then just looks terrible the rest of the fight what does tony martin do oh, and let me let me give magny big credit for the martin fight because martin known for those calf kicks neil magny switches the game plan comes out southpaw in that fight so that the calf kicks weren't an option i was like oh i was like i see that little vet tactic there neil um but the thing here is that like you're, Phil. Phil's not the shorter guy anymore. Phil isn't gonna be like seeing something that, like that, that's like foreign to him. Like he, like dude, like you're not. I don't have to close crazy distance to get to you. And the thing I've noticed about Phil Rowe, it's like every round is a tale of a different fight. When you watch, if you only watch round one of Phil Rowe fights, he looks fucking terrible in round one every fight. Watch his contender series fight against uh, the, the junior Shabazian. Round one, he's getting shit kicked. Round two, it's like a different guy. Um, same thing against uh, Kose. Same thing against Wit. Uh, against Nico, he kind of controlled that from the jump. Yeah. But, like, I don't know what it is. It's like he looks terrible in round one. But once he, like, picks it up, Dude, when guys get hit with his straight, like it's like their life flashed by, like before their eyes, and they see God. And we know Magny's not the most durable. And I do want to bring this up: how one way to beat Magny is to chop down those calf kicks. Uh, I'm hoping you don't remember about when Gabe Green chopped down the legs of uh, Phil Rowe. So you know yeah. it, that that method's been used against both of them before, but. I, the thing is, like, these guys are tiring themselves out trying to clinch with Magny, and I'm just not convinced that that's going to happen to Rowe. I do think Rowe's going to lose the first round just like he does every single fight, but I think when he finds his range, I think he might be able to hurt a guy in Magny who's been knocked out on multiple occasions, who's actually been submitted on multiple occasions. Rowe is a black belt, and not just a black belt, a black belt that rolls every day with Rodolfo Vieira, with Jacare Souza, a guy who I'm pretty sure he competed against Gordon Ryan in pure grappling. Now, granted, he got killed, but the fact that he's got the balls to, to go in there with the fucking best, like, he's testing himself. He's kind of on the upward trajectory, whereas we've already seen the finished product of neil magny and while you do bring up great points that jeff neil d rod all these guys are far more accomplished than phil rowe i mean i'm not gonna why would i argue with facts i wouldn't but what i would say is jeff neil has not been the same guy since he almost died like period like like even the shaft calf i like comes in 175 pounds dude like like come on like that's not the same jeff neil that uh prior to when he almost died um, what, what was the other, uh, oh, D-Rod, dude, D-Rod pissed me off in a way in that fight. Like it was one, one going into the third round. D-Rod uh, gets on top in that third round. Let's just ride him out the rest of the round. He gets up, goes back to the same bullshit, trying to tie up in the clinch with Magni. And then eventually he gets Darce choked. I was like, oh my God, D-Rod. So 
I think just physically speaking, Phil might be able to bring something that these other guys haven't. It's just experience wise is where I'm nervous, but I, I, I might be interested in taking the shot here. I might be interested. I think you might have something for him. I think you bring something to the uh, different to the table in terms of the, the physical aspect. And I do think he's a skilled guy. Um, it's just, you know, I got no one to blame, but myself, if Neil vet lessens him, you know, we know that's a possibility here. And you think, everything you said is hundred percent true. Do you think that Neil Magny is a hall of famer? I was just going through his record. Like, I feel like he's one of, one of those guys that's going to be like a fringe hall of famer. I'm curious what you think about that. I don't. And I'll tell you why, why, why do I think Jim Miller is? And why do I not think, uh, Magny is well, Jim Miller, I can point to multiple records that he's broken whether it's most fights, most wins, most finishes, most bonuses, whatever. Um, I'm not sure if I can point to a single record of Magni. Maybe most wins at welterweight. That, that might be one because he's just been – Yeah, I think it is. He fights so long. Uh, so most wins at welterweight. I, I just personally wouldn't put him there. Um, I don't know if that sounds hypocritical because I'd put Miller there, but I think just Miller – all the records he's broken and to have that kind of longevity i i put miller there but magni not yet but let's see who, who knows maybe he goes on one of those like bisbing title runs where you, you're counting him out you think he's done and he's got i got one more in me like that like that meme you know what i'm saying yeah <laughs> yeah it's funny because he had like he has wins over guys like Robbie Lawler, Carlos Condit, Kelvin Gastelum. Like, he is some solid wins. I mean, I know, like, the Lawler fight, for example, wasn't in his prime. But in terms of resume, like, I he'd be, like, right on the line for me. Like, that's why I was curious to your opinion because I don't really feel strongly about it one way or the other. But maybe he rips off three, four more wins. But he has 20 UFC wins, which is, like, pretty crazy. Like, very few people get to accomplish that feat. So it's it's impressive nonetheless. De- definitely some kind of veterans award wouldn't be you yeah know. but uh someone had a question for you how do i get that gombas closing line value lou is always talking about um that's a hard question to answer it's a combination of things you have to the simple answer would be to just follow my picks. <laughs> I, I don't know how else to say it better than that. But the long answer is to kind of get good at reading the market, understanding trends, knowing which books are indicative of which way the market's going to move. Um, obviously, if you are a sharp originator, you probably are going to be on the side that's getting CLV most of the time. So just kind of knowing what the right side is, whether that comes from having a good eye for it, which most people don't have, or being able to read the market, trends, et cetera. Um, and yeah, just, it's a lot, it's a, like a, a formula, like a potion. Like it's a lot of stuff that goes into the equation, but I would say just kind of focus on getting better at reading the market, knowing how, knowing, understanding trends, looking for certain um, tendencies, like there's certain types of fights where certain people get bet. Like I can't give it like super straight, but yeah, hopefully that helped a little bit. I don't know if it did at all, but yeah, that, that's what I, <laughs> those are the things I look for. So next up in also in the welterweight division, we got Randy Rudeboy Brownie, 16 and five welcoming Wellington Termon to the welterweight division it was 18 and six. And currently they got it. Randy Brown minus two twenty. The comeback on Wellington Termon is plus one eighty five. So this tends to be the normal Randy Brown price 
in fights like this. Um, you know, when he's not fighting that hot prospect, he's usually a minus 220, minus two something favorite. So what do we expect from Wellington dropping down to 70s? I mean, we know what he brings to the table. Uh, good jujitsu, physical guy, trains with Glover and Alex Pereira, you know, got good people around him. Seems like a good kid, super young. Um, and I felt like in some fights, it seemed like, you know, he was starting to put things together. But, you know, there's been a couple hit or miss performances. But even like the last one against Petrosky, like I thought that was just more due to Petrosky just being a ridiculous dog, man. Like that dog that Petrosky had like in that second and third round. Because I sent that video. Uh, my buddy, uh, I was telling you about Travis Sheha, D1 All-American. I think either him and Petrosky were on the same team or they wrestled against each other. So whenever Petrovsky's fighting, we're always kind of like, you know, chatting about it. And I was blown away by his performance against Terman. And I sent it, I sent it to Travis. I was like, let me know what you think. So round one happens. He's like, what's so impressive about this? I was like, I was like just keep watching, just keep watching. And then the things he was doing to a black belt in the second and third round, I mean, he sent him out the weight class. So here completely different. Randy Brown, not a former D one wrestler, not a black belt. And, Actually, he might be. I think he's a brown belt or a black belt. So take that back. But not a D1 wrestler. I will not take that back. Um, but Randy, we know what he brings to the table. He's a guy that's always been, you know, very gifted. A guy that's always been, I think he's been skilled. I think he's been developing. And he's kind of been learning on the job since he got to the UFC. Like he was always like that six foot four, you know, long striker. And man, he's styled on certain people. But, you know, a little bit on the greener side, kind of, kind of had to uh, fix a couple things. And now he's an established vet of the sport. Um, he knows what his game is. It's just, you know, certain things, whether questions about his chin, questions about the durability of him taking leg kicks, questions about the takedown defense, and sometimes questions about him being a little bit arrogant when he fights. He likes to showboat a lot. He likes to play games with his opponent. He was even doing that his last fight against Della and he got caught as a result. If you actually go back and watch this finishing sequence, don't just watch the, the choke. Watch what happened prior to the choke. Um, Randy, you know, I think he, he landed something, then he did like his little cute dance, and then he gets clipped right away and doesn't recover. So Randy will fuck around in fights, and laying a price like this, I don't want a guy that's going to put his hands behind his back and a guy that's going to just be cocky and give you every opportunity to beat him. If I know Randy's, you know, gonna fight smart and not you know fight with his ego i think he should be able to take this but stylistically it's interesting and wellington dropping the to, to 70s is interesting as well so what do you think yeah I, I think you nailed that breakdown like just the question marks between Terman coming down and weight and magni or magni i'm still on the last fight and uh brandy brown coming off of getting finished by jack della madalena it's enough for me not to want to lay a big price tag. That being said, I do think Randy Brown's the more skilled fighter, so I am picking him to win this fight. You mentioned he's a long striker. Um, he's good jiu-jitsu. He's one of those guys that he just doesn't really have many holes in his game, um, but he's also not the type of fighter to really separate himself um, to the point where you're wanting to be laying big price tags on him. So the fight's an all-around pass for me, but, yeah, I'm, I'm picking him to get the win. You're picking Randy? Yep. So this next one, I'm very excited to talk about. So everybody smash the like button. And if you're not subscribed, please subscribe. When this is over, uh, leave me a comment. And then also follow Andrew at Bets and Picks MMA. Now, 
Next up in the lightweight division, we've got a matchup between Mateusz, Rebe- Mateusz Rambetsky. He's 17 and one, taking on Loic Radzabov, who's 17 and four. Currently, they got it. Mateusz Rambetsky, minus 150, the comeback on Loic Radzabov, plus 130. And I'm, I'm going to keep it 100 with you, man. I like Rebecca in this spot a lot. And I'll tell you why. I think that Rebecca is getting unnecessary heat. For his last fight against Fiore. Like when you beat the shit out of someone for three straight rounds, and the criticism is that you didn't finish him in a minute, that that's what we're gonna hold against him. Like I saw domination. Yeah, did he gas? Yeah, he gassed from beating the living shit out of a guy. And not to mention, and, and we gotta bring up like Fiore was like running away too. Mateusz is a smaller guy. Like, not only are you beating this guy's ass, but you're you have to go track him down because he he doesn't want to. He didn't want no part of you. Like, so I would not hold it against him not finishing that guy at all. Cause like, yeah, Fiore might not be in the UFC anymore anymore and he might not be good, but what he is good at, he's good at getting his ass whooped. He's kind of one of those durable, gumby, long ass guys that scarecrow kind of guys that, yeah, he's not gonna offensively do shit, but he's not gonna get finished either. You like you just beat his ass for three straight rounds. And it's tiring as fuck to beat someone up, man. I mean, like. Like, do you remember Shane Carwin, Brock Lesnar? I mean, what happened there was Shane Carwin gas from beating the shit out of Brock Lesnar. Eventually, it's like, Jesus, what do I got to fucking do to this guy? And like, even with that, all, even with all that being said, Rambetsky never took a step back. Rambetsky, and the one time he got taken down, popped right back up. I mean, like, was held down for like less than two seconds. So, I mean, I think that this guy is a fucking cocked fucking just stud that is going to be a wrecking ball for a lot of people to deal with. And I respect rats above. I mean, this guy prior to the UFC paid his dues in PFL got wins over respectable guys. Chris Wade, Pat Sabatini. I mean, kid, you earned your UFC spot and that fight you had with uh, Esteban Ribovich. I, I love it. But, but the thing is this, when you're talking about gassing via beating someone's ass, let's talk about it in both these instances because similar things happen, but there were some key differences. Here are the key differences. When Rebecca, Rambetsky, excuse me, was uh, you know fatigued from whooping on Fiore, I mean, it's not like Fiore had any moments. Like Rambetsky just kept whooping him. He was just a little tired doing it. Whereas when Radzabov gassed from whooping on uh, Ribovich, Radzabov was the one that was getting dropped and face planting. Radzabov was the guy that was wobbling all over the place. Radzabov was the guy that looked vulnerable and against a guy like Rambetsky, who's got a way higher grappling pedigree than Esteban Ribovich, who's not going to just easily get held down. Like, and I say easily held down. Ribovich got back up eleven times. Like when you look at the stat that says you took him down eleven times, that might that might be impressive in the sense that I love guys that can attempt takedown after takedown after takedown. But you also have to put context that well, if he took him down eleven times, that means that the guy also got up ten to eleven times, right? So let, let's let's just get that out the way. So yeah, I mean, I think that Rats above is a respectable guy, but I think that R- Rambetsky's just kind of more physical. I think he's. He's just he's just got that motor. He's just gonna keep going. I think he's just kind of kind of he's gonna kind of run him over. And I think the guys that came in at minus so it actually was like minus two twenty. Then it went all the way down to minus one twenty five. Y'all that got in at minus one twenty five, y'all did a fantastic job. And 
I'm I, I'm gonna just keep it frank with you, like I always do. I think there's value at minus one forty five. I think there's value at minus 150. I respect Rad's above, but I think this is a buy low spot on Rambetsky. Like Rambetsky was, what was his line against uh, Nick Fiore? Minus six, minus five, whatever. Um, even his, wow. his, his fight on, on contender series, like big favorites. And this is an experienced guy. This is a guy that's been five rounds on his regional scene, fought tough competition outside the UFC. So I, I get minus 145 here because he beat the shit out of someone for three rounds instead of finishing him in 60 seconds like that's why i get a discount it's not i'm not getting a discount because he lost a close fight or something i'm getting a discount because he 30 25 the guy instead of finishing him in the first minute i'm on rambetsky here and i will move in at some point soon yeah you you make a compelling case i'm picking loik here but really yeah it's not my most confident take of the card but when I look at these guys, I actually see a lot of similarities between them, like in their fighting style. Like they both look to get takedowns. I both think their striking's a little bit ugly, for lack of a better term. I think Rebecca's a little bit hittable. Um, I do think that Loic has better wins. On the Rebecca side, I like the way he goes to the body. That's my favorite thing he does on the feet. And um, like I said, both these guys, I'm not sold on either of their cardio. It's funny, like I do see a lot of similarities between them, but I do think just I, I guess I'll say that Loic's a little bit better of a striker. His wins are a little bit better. So that that's kind of why I'm leaning him. Um, obviously, even though Rebecca did beat up Fiori very bad, it's not like it's a notable win. Like, it hasn't exactly aged well, if that makes sense. Um, so, yeah, I'm picking Loic. It's not my, not my most confident take on the card. but um, I, I mean, but you talk about how Rambetsky gets hit a lot. Facts. He does. But, like, Loic was, like, face planning is, is- – 100%. I'm not. I'm not denying that for sure. But I, I actually think they're very similar fighters and a lot of their strengths and weaknesses. I, I see that. I see the similarity, but I think that just like physicality wise, and if both guys are tired, I just see like Rambetsky like he's gonna push on that on that pedal even if he's tired. And back to the Fiore fight. It's not about the opponent. We know Fiore sucks. That's not that at the mm-hmm. UFC level, guys. I'm not saying I'd beat him. I'm just saying UFC level. We know uh, Fiore sucks, but like people are criticizing like him because it wasn't like a first minute finish, and they're acting like it like uh, like what's his name? Like Fiore had some kind of success in that fight, dude. Fiore got the shit beaten out of him for 15 straight minutes. So like, why 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 am I supposed to hold that against Rambetsky? That's what I can't figure out here. Like. It's back to like when people criticize fighters for for winning decisions. Oh, he's a decisionator. It's like, uh, like aren't we like looking for line value here? Like you know that a decision's in a pro a perfectly acceptable way to win a fight. Like why why would I take that away from him? Never. Okay, so I guess you think you think it's dog or pass at this price? Yeah, probably. I- interesting. Like I'd understand if you were saying that. I like the. The minus two twenty where Rambetsky was at, and I could still be fucking wrong. Of course, I'm gonna be wrong many more times. But I, I, I just see just more of a brute. Um, you know, both guys skilled, but but just more physical, and that physicality goes a long way, man. Um, like when two guys are equally skilled, but one's more physical, I'm gonna go with that guy. So and 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 back back to it, if 
I want to say if the Fiore fight didn't happen, but like the Fiore fight wasn't like a negative in my eyes, man. Like I, I just feel like this is almost like a lower price than it would be on on where going into that Fiore fight, Rambeski was like what sixteen and one. He was a guy that people were like, hey, this could be a future top fifteen guy, and because he thirty twenty five is a guy instead of a first round knockout, now all of a sudden I get minus one forty five. So that that's kind of where my head's at on it. No, it makes sense. Now, next up in the strawweight division, we got a matchup between Tabitha Ricci. She's eight and one, taking on Jillian Robertson, who's twelve and seven. Currently, they got it. Tabitha minus one thirty. The comeback on Jillian plus one ten. Um, I mean, we know what Jillian brings to the table. The same thing she's brought to the table since the beginning. Excuse me, since the beginning. If you watched her on the Ultimate Fighter with Eddie Alvarez, he explained it perfectly he broke it down eddie alvarez said back on the ultimate fighter if jillian can't get her submission she tends to kind of fold up a little bit and that's literally been the case throughout her career um and here she's taking on you know maybe some jujitsu credentials have been overblown we're not dealing with Mackenzie dern but we're still dealing with a legit black belt and someone a little bit more physical and if she plays the game right here i mean i think the game plan has been established for years on how to beat Jillian Robertson. And this is someone that can survive on the mat if it even gets to those bad spots. So I think that actually Ricci can kind of wrestle in reverse, keep the fight standing, light her up. If she feels so inclined to make a, make a point and take it to the mat, I think that option's there. But why give Jillian a chance to win the fight? So... I just I just see more paths for Ricci. But yeah, I mean, like, listen, if I'm not watching the fight and I just walk in and we start off and Jillian's got the back of uh of Ricci, yeah, obviously that's not a situation I want to happen if I'm on the Ricci side. Like we understand how dangerous Jillian is. She's got the most fucking subs in the history of that weight class. I credit to you, girl. It's just stylistically, um, I don't think she's gonna have that same ground superiority here. Um, that she that she's known for, and for that reason, I'm gonna go with Tabitha Ricci. Yeah, this is for me. This is a very tricky fight. On one hand, I'm like, okay, Robertson. It's one of those things where her in the past, I've actually found her fights very easy to cap. She's been one of my most like profitable fighters, betting on her and against her. Like for whatever reason, I'm just able to read her fight. It has to do with the grappling, but I'm er- very um, profitable betting her fights overall. This one, I, I like Robertson, but it's not a strong conviction for me. T- to me, it comes down to like, okay, Ricci's never really been tested defensively grappling. Like, she took down um, Oliveira, Jessica Penne, Poliana Viana, like girls that can't defend a takedown or don't like Poliana Viana didn't want to defend a takedown. Like, for example, she's fine being on her back. And for me, it's like, okay. I don't really know what Ricci's bottom game is like, but I know from top, I think Jillian's a more dangerous fighter than Ricci is from top. Like I was actually perplexed watching some tape on Ricci and she was like standing up from top position and she did it like multiple times in multiple fights. And for me, that's like a question, not even a question mark, but more of a red flag. Like, Robertson gets on top. She's going to punish you. And like I said, I'm ha- I don't have too great of a feel for the wrestling or even for the striking. I feel like neither of them are great strikers, but I don't think striking is going to play too big of a role in this fight. I think it's going to turn into a grappling match one way or the other. 
And I just – I know Robertson is dangerous from top. I don't feel the same about Ricci. And Robertson's a little bit bigger too. I feel like a lot of the times Robertson struggled in the past. It was up at 125 pounds. And she's fighting girls that are big like Miranda Maverick or like Tyler Santos. But back down at 115, like you take a look at like the Pierre Rodriguez fight, I think she's going to do well at 115. It's one of those spots where like – the winner of this fight could look minus 400. Like, I feel like regardless of who it is, and obviously if we knew which one of them it was going to be beforehand, we'd all be rich. But, yeah, I'm leading uh, Jillian here. It, it's a tricky fight, though, for sure. Now, next up in the flyweight division, we got Zalgas Zumagulov. He's 14-8. and eight. Welcome in Joshua Van, who is 7-1. and one. And y'all let me know if Van is how you pronounce the last name because, like, um, like, with some of these names, like, it, it, it can be spelled Neguyen, but it actually pronounces win. So let me know if Van is actually how you pronounce uh, the kid's name. But anyways, it's gotta be. yeah, I mean, watch it be like something like totally off the cusp. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But uh, currently they got it. Zalgas minus Zalgas minus 200, Andrew. The comeback on Josh Van plus 170. Um, listen, man. Zalgas is a guy I've criticized since day one, even prior to him coming to the UFC, because like if you watch all his fights, like back in Russia, which great regional scene and tough competition, we got to give him credit. I mean, he was in there with Tagir. He was in there with Tyson Nam. He was in there with Ali Bagotinov. But man, I felt like he lost like all those fights. And the interesting thing is now he's coming to the UFC and he's finally losing all the close decisions um, that, you know, that he wasn't losing back in Russia, which we thought he should have lost. And interestingly enough, I talk about this every time Zagas fights. Um, I'm like the only person on MMA decisions that scored both the Molina and the Johnson fights against Zagas. And I, I stand by that to this day. I ain't going to participate in no groupthink bullshit. I mean, what I saw in those fights was I saw Molina triple a man up on strikes and I saw the, the Johnson fights a little bit closer, but if you if you if you watch it and you pay close attention, most of Zaga's shots are swinging at air, hitting the shoulder, hitting the glove. Whereas when Johnson had his moments, heads were getting popped back. You'd see some bigger reactions. So I kind of slightly edged it for him, and I stand by that. Um, and then I even cashed on Paiva against him, a fight that people say he got robbed there too. It's like, nah, bro, he didn't get robbed. He fights close with everyone. And the, the thing I said coming into the UFC is this is a guy that can get bullied. He's too small for the for the uh, flyweight division, which is crazy because there's no atom weight at the UFC. He's just he's tiny. He's an older guy. As a man, I respect him. Dude's got like six, seven wives. So, I mean, like, hey. If, if my boy Zagas wants to hang out, I'm down anytime, man. Like, we'll go out and we'll have a fucking great time. But as far as backing him at the betting window at minus 200 when, I mean, the only time he's won in the UFC, he destroyed the worst guy on the roster at the time, uh, Jerome Rivera, who ended up going 0-4. And, and if you count Contender Series, uh, Jerome Rivera won one of the biggest robberies in Contender Series history against that kid, Lazy Boy. I hope we see that kid. Uh, at some point again i don't remember that one too i was at the uh Zalgas versus rivera fight isn't it crazy that fight was at like one i'm pretty sure that fight was 145 yeah oh shit that's true and wasn't that the same crazy. night didn't connor fight that night yeah i think that was the poirier the third poirier fight if i remember correctly okay man that must have been crazy so now to josh van dude i'll tell you what okay look he's only seven and one so he's green but I see things I like. 
Um, I like the athleticism. I like the killer instinct. I like the ability to create opportunistic finishes. One thing I heard about, uh, I heard an interview with Mike Malat, who actually I've been gaining a ridiculous amount of respect for, and I'm starting to think that maybe he actually is a legit prospect because that shit he did a few good, man. I was like, God damn, like that was like a beautiful performance. I was like, okay, maybe I was wrong about this kid. Um, but he was talking about how, it's about creating the finish. It's not about expecting it to come to you or any shit. It's about going out there and making it happen, creating it. And this kid, Josh Van, creates finishes. And But I love the athleticism. Kind of reminds me of like a small like Robbie Lawler, like a green Robbie Lawler. He's got that kind of aggression, and he's going to go for it. Um, you know, certain things need to be patched up, whether it's the takedown defense, the get-up game. I think it has been getting better over the years. Um, but look, this is a huge step up in competition. No questions asked, but Zagas is a very beatable guy. Um, despite the, the experience gap, he's a beatable guy fights close with everyone. Unless you just completely don't belong like Jerome Rivera. Have you con- concluded that van completely doesn't belong? Cause I haven't, as far as I'm concerned, I see why they asked him to be on contender series. And I think with some more development, he can be someone to look out for. Yeah, I mean, the thing that frustrates me about this fight is we're, this is the same line that we, you and I were on the same page when Zalgas was going to fight the LFA champ, Boons, I think his name was. And I feel like Boons was a better fighter than Van. So I'm kind of frustrated that like if the line's the same, and we were, we were going to be able to get Boons at that same line. But I'm picking Zalgas here. It's just one of the – again, it's one of those situations where – He's minus 200, and he doesn't necessarily separate himself. He fights close. He tends to fight close every time. Um, he's not going to dominate the grappling. So, like, those are things I look for when I want to lay big price tags. I I don't mind under here. I think both these guys are, can kind of land a lot of punches and just the way their styles mesh. But um, from a picks perspective, I like Zalgis. Van, I think – he, he has a future in the sport, but he's born in like 2000. Like he's very young. He's born in like 2001. I do think he's green. I still think he's a little bit void defensively. I think Zalgas probably wins. Um, but again, it's just not a fight that I would ever lay minus 200 on. Yeah. I mean, look, you're probably right. Um, experience does count for a lot, but I'm going to go on a limit. I'm going to take the newcomer to come out here and upset a very beatable fighter in Zalgas who can be bullied who always fights close, who never makes a statement, who fades down the stretch, who's getting up there in age. Um, So let's see if you're ready or not. I mean, there's a chance the kid's not ready, but let's see. At least I know I'm getting a violent fighter that's going to go for it. At least, you know, it's not someone who's just going to sit back and you throw one, I throw one. This kid's going to get right in your face. He's going to try to fight you. And I need someone that's going to try to bully Zalgas. So let's see. Let's see. Yeah, I get it. Trust me. Now, here we go. The people's main event. Next up in the lightweight division, we got the GOAT, Trevor Peak. He's 8-0, taking on Jose Chepe Marisco, who's 13-6. and Currently, they got it minus 110 apiece. Uh, so I just want to do some quick housekeeping notes. You remember how early on in the show I was talking about how I cashed uh, Taporia plus 160 against Zalal 
in his debut, which seems in hindsight craziness. You know, we've talked about these things often, the Barella versus Tyler Santos, how you get this price one time, and if they ever ran it back, you know, 10 times, yeah. you'd make that same bet over and over. Shit, you give me fucking plus 160 on Tapori against the Lal, I'll make that bet every day of the week. But the reason I bring that, um, it wasn't it's not to impress you, but to impress upon you that – the evidence I saw that there were all these openings on the mat was actually because of this Mariscal guy's fight with Yusuf Zalal on the regional scene. Because I don't know if you recall, but Yusuf Zalal, when he got signed to the UFC, he was one and two in his last three fights, right? So he had lost to uh, one guy, he lost to Mariscal, and then he got like a quick little flying knee and they, and they uh, brought him in. He fought Austin Lingo. Um, but in the Mariscal fight, Briscoe was, you know, dominating position on Yusuf Zalal, was taking the back, was creating big scrambles, was doing his thing. So right then and there, I was like, well, uh, I just saw everything I needed to see to confirm that this kid Taporia is going to do similar things and similar things he did. So that uh, so thank you, Chepe Marisco, for you know, help helping me, you know, finalize that Taporia plus 160 bet against the law. So I'll always have a soft spot for Mariscal. And this is a guy that's paid that's paid his dues, Andrew. I mean, been in the LFA for so long. Um, you know, beat UFC guys that are Pat Sabatini beat Zab- Sabatini back in 2018. Beat Yusuf Zalal. Um, even his losses, been in there with Gregor Gillespie. I mean, like the guy's been in the guy's battle tested, lost to Joe Anderson Brito got fucking killed in under a minute but still that's a guy in the ufc doing his thing steve garcia another guy in the ufc doing his thing sean soriano former ufc fighter so it's not like this kid's coming in here with any short of shortage of experience and not to mention now he's back on a three-fight win streak in real organizations cage warriors combache back to lfa so like Dude, you earned your UFC spot. My, my, my issue here, Andrew, is that I think he's a little bit too small. I think he's a natural featherweight. Um, this is on short notice going up to 55s. And while the kids definitely paid his dues, um, I think that Trevor Peak's going to be a bit too physical for him. And while Chepe Marisco might have the more, you know, might be more technically sound, I think that there's something about that brute strength that, uh, that Trevor brings to the table. And Trevor, more importantly than the knockout power or anything like that, he's a guy that is very relaxed in there. If you saw his last fight against uh, the Ghost Pepper, when he got taken down, you know, it didn't look like a fish out of water. It didn't look like a guy who, you know, you take my back and I'm going to Melvin Gallarda and just tap right away. Like, you look like a guy that I'm going to wait for my opportunity to get back up, whether it's with a butterfly hook, whether it's go belly down and stand back up, whether it's wall walk against the cage. Like he had his options ready to get back up to the feet. And when he did, there were multiple locations in that fight where I was shocked that ghost pepper didn't go down because man, he was getting cracked hard. And that's one thing that Trevor brings to the table. It might not be the prettiest. It might not be the most, you know, technically, uh, proficient and if you go to a boxing gym and watch him hit pads i bet it looks pretty ugly but when he gets in there man the the look on these guys faces when they get hit by him and uh, yeah we can write off comma worthy who gets knocked out every fight okay um even beat nfc vet warren smith shout out to him on that one but um these last two fights like just that that you can hear the reverberate you can hear the crack the reverberation of the shots echo across the arena 
and the looks in the opponent's eyes. So I think that Chepe is going to come out here and probably get some takedowns early, probably do some stuff early. But the longer this fight goes, that physicality actually being in the right weight class, Chepe has been knocked out more than once. I think Trevor's going to catch him um, at some point in this fight. So let's go, Trevor. And I hear uh, Trevor, you know, he got that 50K bonus last time. So that means that he quit his job. He's been training full time. So that means we're going to see Trevor in a peak condition. You've been waiting all show to say that one, huh? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this this fight to me feels very coin flippy. I was so – I normally I'd say 9 out of 10 or more I'm able to kind of – have an idea of where the line's going to go. I thought people would like peak here and really all the money's coming on there. So I, I was able to grab, again, this was kind of like the rebus fight. I was able to grab a little plus 150 when it was on the move, but I was not an official bet or anything. Sorry, just, on, on who? On Marisol, plus 150. Okay. And um, I don't know if I'm going to keep it yet or not. I might trade out of it just to kind of profit, but no, I'll probably keep it. It feels like a coin flip to me. You mentioned mentioned a couple of very good um, points, being that like Marisol, he's been around the block, he's fought a really good guy, he's even beaten some good guys, he's some grappling upside, but he's fighting a bigger guy at 155 pounds here in short notice. Peak very unconventional um, skill wise. I don't think he's any good to be honest. Like, but he just has that fight changing power that he's gonna get. He's gonna knock some guys out. And I mean, even in his last fight, it's just like. You, you, you kind of nailed it. He, he has that special power, so to speak, where he could just put a little spook, uh, spook into a guy where they're like, whoa, I just got I just got hit by a truck. And um, yeah, so I think Pete could knock Marisol out. I think Marisol could knock Pete out. I think his, his striking defense is terrible. I think that Marisol has some grappling outside. Um, it, it's a very coin flippy fight to me. I, I don't really know what's going to happen here. I think someone's going to probably get knocked out. Now, next up in the featherweight division, we got a matchup between Jamal Emers. He's 19 and six, taking on Jack Jenkins, who's 11 and two. Currently, they got it. Jamal Emers minus 210. The comeback on Jack Jenkins, Jack Jenkins is plus 180. And I'm going to let you go first because I have a suspicion that you may. And we, um, just so everyone knows, um, Andrew and I usually do talk a lot about like our picks and stuff. But for this, since we were doing the show together, we haven't discussed any of our picks uh, on this fight because we want it to be natural on here. But knowing Andrew, why do I have a suspicion that you are on this fight? Um, I don't know why you have that suspicion, but you're correct. I, um, Emmer's. Minus 160, minus 165 is my biggest position on the card. I think um, he's an, I think he's a really rough matchup for Jack Jenkins, a guy who I was actually – excuse me, I'm all stuffy. He was a guy that I was actually very high on coming out of Contender Series or even coming into Contender Series. Like I bet him in his Contenders fight. I almost even laid big chalk on him in his last fight. Like he got a clean win there. Um, I, I, laid, I laid like minus 300 on him. Yeah, and I mean – he was a deserved big favorite for sure. Um, but he's at a six inch reach disadvantage here. He's a less athletic guy. Jamal Emmers has fought and beaten way better competition. I mean, he's just, he's a wrestling background. He's a talented striker. He's the bigger guy. I, I think this is a really rough fight for Jenkins. I mean, he was fighting a guy who, who no disrespect is, is more of like a regional kind of 
um, journeyman type guy. You're getting a guy in Jamal Emers who's just – he's a very, very good fighter. If you look at what Emers is capable of, I mean, he outlanded Giga Chikaze, who's known for being an extremely talented striker at distance when he fought him. I mean, he – Fought a debut in mean, Ashkabov, who was very hyped up, and he kind of just shut him down for 15 minutes. He goes out there against a guy like Vince Cachero, who is probably on a similar-ish tier to Jack Jenkins, and he just does what he's supposed to do. His loss to Pat Sabatini just has you kind of hitting yourself in the head. I bet him at minus 110. It closed minus 170. He hurts Pat Sabatini. He goes down to the mat and tries to go in a 50-50 heel hook position with him. Ends up getting tapped out. Um, but it's just a different fight. Like, Jack Jenkins on the feet, really the one thing that's concerning for me on the Emmer side is the leg kicks. But outside of that, Emmer's, I think he's going to land in the body a lot. He's great body kicks. He's athletic. He's much bigger and longer. I think he could get takedowns if he wants to. I think this is this is the spot here. I like Emmer's a lot. I think he gets it done handedly. And what line did you say you took him? 65-ish, 60-ish. Okay, well, minus 160 and minus 210 are, you know, two Way different there. prizes, you know. And where would you say the true odds are? Probably minus 265. Okay. Interesting. So here, here's my thing. I mean, because like, you know, having bet Jack Jenkins last fight minus 300 against Sheamus, you know, when I'm laying a chalk like that, like there's a reason for it. And here, when I see a plus 180, immediately I, you know, pulled up the tape and was like, all right, let's see what the deal is here. So let's talk about Jack first. So I don't even feel like Jack's shown his best. Uh, in the contenders or in the UFC. Like, if you watch his regional fights, like, dude, like, we talk about his leg kick game, but I don't think it's something that, oh, he's got good leg kicks, you know, let's just brush it off and talk about the next element of his game. Like, dude, his leg kicks, like, he's broken multiple people's legs with his leg kicks. He, and the other guys that he didn't break their legs, he sent them to the hospital. That's the, that's the kind of kicker we're dealing with insane timing on his calf kicks and when he starts to feel comfortable he really opens it up and has some nasty combinations will start to rip the body and then go to the leg kick kind of like that classic jose aldo combo back in the day you know left hook to the body right leg kick all that um and we saw in contender series that the kick and grapple too i mean i don't know if he didn't feel comfortable striking with that guy you know he's kind of going in there with like a wild latin fighter who like throws flying knees and spins and shit. Maybe maybe uh, Jenkins just felt more comfortable wrestling him, but make no mistake about it. This guy deserves to be in the UFC, and he's here for a reason. The thing with Jamal Emmers is he's extremely experienced. He's been around the block. He's fought the who's who, and when he's on his game, he's actually, like, pretty phenomenal. Like, uh, sometimes he's going to school guys in a way where, like, the, the Vince Cachero fight, which you brought up, over 100 significant strikes in three rounds, and in addition to that, five takedowns as well. Like it's it, like if he just got 103 significant strikes and zero takedowns, I'm cool with it. If he yeah. just got five takedowns and not 103 significant strikes, I'm cool with that too, Gombas. When you combine the two of them, that's a dangerous combination. He's a very long guy for the weight class. And he's starting to feel more at home inside the UFC's octagon. So I think at his best. I mean, this guy, like skills-wise, I think he's top 15. Um, it's just there's been certain things mentally 
that have maybe held him back in the past. Um, not not just in the UFC, even on contender series like the Julian Arosa fight. You can blame it on a head kick, but I've kind of felt like he lost concentration after doing very, very good early in that fight to getting an early knockdown. Kind of felt like he had it uh, in the bag, took his foot off the gas. The Pat Sabatini fight. I mean, you had this guy out of there, and granted, Sabatini a real black belt, but but I mean, Emmers is a legit grappler himself, and I kind of wish he, I kind of wish he, uh, you know, found his way out of that one by find his way, find his way out of the submission, not find his way out of the fight. Um, but uh, and then the Ashkabov fight. Look, he beat a fucking twenty three and zero Russian. That's amazing. But the 23 and 0 Russian was coming off like a, what, a three year layoff and never fought anybody, all this stuff. And that's not to make excuses. So, here I watched the tape last night because when I saw the plus 180 on Jenkins, I was like, hey, if, if Emmers has a mental lapse, this might be a good spot. Um, but, man, I do slightly think that Emmers is ahead of him right now, um, just more experience, and it might be a little bit too much too soon. But that being said, man, I mean, Emmers is still a taller guy for this weight class, which means he's got skinny legs, which means it's not going to take too many of those de- devastating, debilitating calf kicks to kind of chop him down. And that's where you start to see takedown shots come from a mile away. That's where you see, you know, he tries to take him down and then he goes to his back and tries to say, hey, come into my guard because I can't get back up. That's the kind of shit that I'd be most worried about in a spot like this. Um, I think the volume is going to be comparable, but the range of embers might be, you know, something. The thing is like, Jack's always been the shorter guy. So he's used to going in there with guys much taller than him. And with his style, he knows his distance really well. Um, he's got a great fainting game. You know, he's getting coached by Volkanovsky. He's in there with the right people. So I definitely think he's a bright prospect. It's just a matter of, is it too much too soon? At this time, according to you, it is. And according to you, you know, hence the fact you beat the line by like over 40 cents, you did your job. So even if even if this dude gets leg kick TKO'd, go ahead and beat a line move by that much. And you're going to be on the right side of the coin nine times out of 10. So you did your job. But here I'm not looking at the minus 160 that you got. I'm looking at minus 210, minus 220. That's where I kind of feel like it's like dog or pass at plus 180 plus 200, something like that. I'm going to still pick Emmers. Um, I think he's paid his dues. And But again, it's about, is he going to show up? And I hate talking about which version is going to show up because I feel like that discredits the opponent and I would not want to discredit the opponent. But Emmers on top of his game looks fucking fantastic. And if he can show up like that, he probably does hand Jenkins his first UFCL. But Jenkins is a guy I've had my, my eyes on I think he's a legit prospect, and I do think he has a bright future in the sport. Agreed, hundred percent. Now this one, man, it just keeps getting better. Like towards the bottom of the car, I mean, <laughs> dude, flyaway. Oh my god, Tatsura Tyra. He's thirteen and zero, taking on Clayjason Rodriguez, who's eight and two. <coughs> Excuse me. Currently, they got a Tatsura Tyra minus 250. The comeback on Clay Jason plus 210. So when it was like plus 350, Clay Jason, I was like, holy shit. Like, what's what's up with that? Um, you know, I woke up and now it's like plus 210. So a lot of action has been coming in on Clay Jason. Look, Clay Jason's explosive. He's dynamic. He can throw spinning kicks, flying knees, calf slicers. Just explosive, dangerous, Brazilian, good everywhere. 
Tyra is like a little phenom on the mat, man. His grappling is clean. Like even when he gets in the bad spots, stays relaxed, doesn't panic, is always able to reverse the position and get back to his wheelhouse and where he wants the fight to take place. And on the feet, like while he might not be as explosive as Clayderson, I like these knees. I like how he strings his strikes to his takedown attempts. Um, and he might be the best Japanese prospect that we've ever seen. Yeah, I mean, none come to mind that I would say were better than him. I mean, maybe like back in the day, but definitely not recently. I yeah, mean, I, we we tried with Japanese Connor, but <laughs> we did try. Um, but yeah, I think I think Tyra wins this fight. Um, Clayson, it's it's nice because they have a common opponent in CJ Vergara. I just think once Tyra gets on top of him, he's going to go to work. I don't know if he'll necessarily finish him the first time they're down there, but. Tyra's top game is very good. He's very young, so he's getting better. He's big for the weight class. Um, on the feet, it's probably competitive. I, I just don't see it staying on the feet for long. I think Tyra's going to get him down. I think he's going to go to work on the mat. So I, I think he's a big favorite here at Line. I like Tyra as well. Um, and just because, like, like I said, when I went back and I watched these fights, like, man, the transitions. Like, he, it's not like – you know, one of these front runner type grapplers, which we're going to talk about a guy named Cody Brundage coming up where like, you know, if he can't get his first takedown or you survive his first little early onslaught, you know, live the fight another day. Tyra's a dog, man. And Tyra's going to keep trying. And with Clay Jason potentially fading down the stretch, because I don't think it's just going to be a blowout. I, I think there's going to be some holy shit moments coming from Clay Jason. Like you saw that last finish he got. I know who was against, but still, like to, to attempt kicks like that in a UFC fight, you saw what he did on Contender Series. Um, and and it's not a, a cardio issue per se because he went three rounds fine on on Contender Series. It's a pacing issue. The guy goes all out trying trying to destroy you, trying to knock your head into the fifth row, and that fighting style is going to tax. Uh, that, that's just going to tax the gas tank and it is what it is. So eventually Tyra is going to get him down and I'm not sure if he's going to submit him, submit him or not. Cause I mean, we're still dealing with like a team Noguera guy in Clayderson. I mean, I don't know what belt he is. I'm guessing a Brown or a black belt purple at worst, which is still good. So it's like, it's not like he's some slouch on the mat. Um, just Tyra just seems so methodical, seems so locked in. Um, I'm gonna go with Tyra right now. Me too. And last but not least, I'm excited to talk about this. In the middleweight Definitely division, <laughs> we got Cody Brundage. He's 8-4, and four, taking on Cedriquez Duma, who's 7-1. and one. Currently, they got it. Uh, Cody Brundage, minus 175. The comeback on Cedriquez Duma is plus 150. So I was basically the king of the fading Dumas train last time. Took plus 180 on Josh Fremd. And Josh Fremd's a guy who paid his dues on the regional scene, knocked out some real guys. Came to the UFC, went three rounds with Anthony Fluffy, was looking good against Treshawn Gore, got caught in a guillotine where it's like that choke was so tight. And the dude didn't even tap. He's got that dog in him. And then he comes back against Cedriquez and shows him that, like, hey, I'm the one that's been paying my dues. You're not quite ready yet. 
Um, but also going into that fight, Cedric was, was, you know, he was, he, he was acting like someone that's getting ready to pull a massive stunt. Like you remember Jay Perrin before the Rosas fight, it was, it was a similar kind of thing. He was just acting like a total idiot, but he got humbled and getting humbled is important. And, no two performances are alike. And the fact that you were like minus 200 or something against Fremd, and now now, now Cody Brundage is minus 175 to minus 200 in a UFC fight. Let's talk about Brundage for a sec. Skills-wise, Brundage is a skilled grappler, man. I mean, nasty guillotine choke, good wrestling. I mean, physical guy, experience, been in there with good guys. Can't take that away from him. But I don't think Brundage has that dog in him. I've never thought Brundage was the toughest at the at UFC caliber wise. And I'm fully cognizant he tapped me out. But UFC caliber wise, go watch his uh, first contender series fight against uh, William Knight. What happened? Gets the early takedown. Looks like it's going his way. As soon as William Knight gets back up, Cody Brundage uh, said no mas. Like, and that's the tale of like, Every single fight he's had in the UFC, even the ones he's won, which I'll address in a sec, like it's literally like he's going to put a, a grappling onslaught in this first round. And if he can't just dominate you or finish you early or just wind you completely, he starts to break. He starts to fold um, like. So his fight that and also let's talk about fights that go to decision too. I'm going to cover everything with Brundage. So his. The most output Brundage has ever landed in a UFC fight was in his loss against Nick Maximov, where he landed 28 strikes in a three-round fight. Terrible. Awful. Next fight against Dolce Lungjambula. Dolce Lungjambula outstrikes him 29 to 4. Okay? 29 to 4 on significant strikes. On total strikes, Andrew, 50 to 4. I mean, <laughs> Dolce beat the living shit out of Cody and... Gave, handed him that fight on a silver platter like and i respect comebacks because like guys like cheeto um they have comebacks but i view them as like like he had to dig deep and and have that dog whereas like i thought that dolce just said he just just gifted him the win on a silver platter just shoots on, on a terrible takedown and gets guillotine after the dude was ready to go home next fight against treshawn gore Cody got his early takedown. Treshawn gets back up, and then Treshawn's, you know, walking him down, teeing off on him. Treshawn got a little cocky through the same kick over and over again. Cody timed a nice shot, got him out of there. Great, great knockout. Next fight against Mikal, right back to the William Knight talk. Takes him down early. Mikal uh, reverses position, and when Mikal was on top, Cody was ready to go home. Guess what? Guess what? The uh, strike count was in. Uh, the Mikal versus uh, versus Cody fight. Significant strikes, fifteen to zero. Uh, total strikes, twenty five to one. <laughs> you oh, understand what I'm little. saying? And then the next fight against Hodolfo actually did have a little bit more success than expected against Hodolfo, but got past the first round. Shit started to get real, and he found his way out again. So. Basically, what I'm looking at with a guy like Brundage is, yeah, he's the more experienced guy. He's fought the better guys. But, like, I've never seen a, a performance by Brundage where it's, like, a complete performance. I've The only wins he's had, he's pulled out of his ass, are, like, miracle wins. Like, that. how often can you do that? So, here with Dumas, um, okay, so what he's got going for him is that he's going to be the longer guy here. He's got a good kicking game, very, very heavy kicks, and... His grappling has gotten better in the sense that if you watch some of his amateur fights, like he couldn't get up from bottom. Um, 
but his win before contender series against Aaron Higba, like he was getting some nice upper body takedowns. He was reversing position. So it seemed like it was a step in the right direction. And for this uh, fight, he did a few weeks at Fusion Excel. We were talking about Julian Williams and Phil Rowe and Rodolfo and Jacare and all those guys earlier in the show. So at least Cedric was, you know, got out of his comfort zone and went and trained with those guys for a few weeks. Now, I texted one of my buddies in that Florida scene about how the kid's looking. I'm not going to say who. I'll tell you off air, but he, but this is what he said. I said, I said, I said, what's up, man? Did Dumas do this whole camp with you or just a few weeks here and there? And he said, just a few weeks, which I would have preferred a full camp, but few weeks out your comfort zone is better than no weeks out your comfort zone. Um, and I said, so how's he looking? He said, look, he needs a lot of BJJ work, but he's ready to scrap. So what that tells me is that Cody Brundage, look, if you can come out here, take him down, get an early sub, you know, that's definitely a path to victory. But Cody Brundage breaks when that doesn't happen, man. Cody Brundage, like I've never watched a Cody Brundage fight where I've truly seen him enjoy being in there. I don't think he likes fighting. I think he's skilled. I think in the in the practice room, he's, pro he's definitely a problem. He can definitely grapple and he can definitely crack. But does he actually enjoy the process of fighting? I don't think so. I don't think he enjoys this. And I think when he's getting kicked with those shots by Cedriquez, I think he's going to start to fold up a little bit. So I can never back Cody Brunage at minus 170, minus 200 in any UFC fight. And you love to talk about market overcorrection. Why was uh, Cedriquez minus 200 against a much tougher opponent? Frem's got that dog. Frem's six foot five. Frem, Frem's way more dangerous than Cody. And Frem enjoys fighting. Most importantly, like, do you think if uh, if uh, Treshawn Gore put Cody in that same guillotine that Cody would have let himself go to sleep? Hell no. Cody would have tapped right away, which no, no, no shame in that. I would have tapped right away, too. But I'm just saying it's just, it's just a different level of toughness. I don't think Brundage has that dog in him. I get why he's favored. The more experience Dumas just made a fool out of himself. But I'm going to go Dumas here, actually, surprisingly. Um, I think that he gets taken down early. And if he can get back up, I think Brundage breaks like he breaks every single fight, even in the fights he wins. So I'm going Cedricos Dumas for the upset. Yeah, I mean, dude, there's no way this fight isn't hilarious. Like, there's none. I can't see any scenario. Like, I don't. I'm not confident in who's going to win, but I am confident that this fight is going to be super entertaining. Like, I think Brundage is going to get on top of him early and have a shot to finish. But if he doesn't, I think this fight's just going to get wild. Like. Dumas is much longer. I think he's like a seven-inch reach advantage or something like that. Brundage is like a glass cannon. He's going to win in under a few minutes or he's not going to win most likely. It's just one of those things where anything could happen in this fight. Like Dumas could choke him. Like he's these long arms. He could get under his neck. Like Brundage kind of just shoots with his head out there. Like he, he's, a, he's a pure wrestler. I think from top position, Brundage could pound him out. Like – this fight's just this fight's just incredible. Like I lean under one and a half. I think either Brundage finishes him very early, or things could turn south very very quickly. But like I mentioned before, with the Onama fight, just from like a pure market perspective, like no matter what I see on the tape, this fight is dog or pass. Like the market just went from minus two hundred against Josh Friend to plus 150 against Cody Brundage. Like, it just makes it impossible to bet the bet that side. So 
I, I'm going to very, very, very unconfidently pick Cody Brundage to get it done early, but I think this fight could go so many different ways. From a betting perspective, it, ha- it has to be dog or pass. So, Andrew, before we get out of here, we got to talk about the fight to watch and the fighter to watch. And before we do that, everybody watching, please do me a favor and hit the like button. Uh, when this is over, leave me a comment. If you're not subscribed, please subscribe. And then also follow my friend Andrew at Bets and Picks MMA. Now, Andrew, what is the fight to watch for UFC Jacksonville? Oh, my friend, we just talked about it. It's Dumas versus Brendan. There's, <laughs> there's no way that fight isn't awesome. Like, if, if that fight is boring, I will, I'll come back on here and apologize to everyone. But I, I just don't see any scenario where that fight is just not incredible from a viewing perspective. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't have said it better. For me, my fight to watch was David Onama versus Gabriel Santos for similar reasons, just at a higher level. I mean, yep. there's no way in hell. When's the last boring David Onama fight you've ever seen? And when's the last boring Gabriel Santos fight you've ever seen? And again, for y'all that have Fight Pass, or if you don't have Fight Pass here, life hack, sign up for the week free trial and then cancel right away. Go watch Gabriel Santos versus Marcio Barboza. I'm telling you, I mean, pandemonium. Like, just as exciting as Onama versus Landwehr. Just as exciting as Onama versus Mason Jones. So, for that reason, and both guys desperately need a win here, David Onama versus Gabriel Santos is my fight to watch, Andrew. Banger. And so, Andrew, who is your fighter to watch for UFC Jacksonville? Um, I'm going to go with Tetsuro Tyra. I mean, he's just, like we talked about, very talented prospect. He's getting that next small i don't even know if he's getting a step up here because he did fight um cj vergara who is about the same level as rodriguez but just an opportunity for him to show how he's progressing as a fighter i think he's getting better every time out and just another another uh, opportunity to kind of get eyes on him and build start to build his name up as he kind of continues through the ufc so i think he's my fighter to watch i'm gonna go brennan allen and and i'm, I'm gonna tell you why because this is a super dangerous fight, Andrew, like I was telling you. And I'm going to be repeating myself, but I feel like I have to. You had a main event lined up against Jack Hermanson, and it was back-to-back main events because you just fought Andre Muniz in a last-minute main event. You go out there and beat Jack Hermanson, like, dude, you're, like, in the top five. Like, you're right up there, like, with the best of the best in the division. And who would, who knows? could be bright skies for brendan allen now you just took a fight against an unranked guy who is a devastating knockout artist and when i say devastating andrew do you know what bruno silva's uh knockout ratio is meaning how many times he's won by knockout and how many times he's lost by knockout off the top of your head just just, just take a guess 90 <laughs> well he, he's got 23 wins so oh does he i thought i thought you meant never mind sorry i misunderstood your question so I'm saying how many knockouts in Bruno Silva's pro career, how many knockout wins do you think he has and how many knockout losses do you think he has? Oh, oh I get what you're saying now. It's probably like crazy high. Like I, I know I said 90 off the bat, but it's probably like, yeah, no, I, I'll say 90, like 90%. Oh, you're saying percent. That oh, okay. I got you. I got you. Oh, My no, bad. I didn't mean like ninety fights. I meant like ninety percent. So I was like, I must have misunderstood you. <laughs> okay, so check this out. This man, Bruno Silva, has won twenty fights by knockout and has lost zero fights by knockout. Wow. 
Incredible. How many, how many fights is that? 30? Uh, I mean, altogether, um, he's got 31 fights. So okay, he's so won. I was, off by, I was off by a fair amount. Um, and then, but it's the opposite for submissions. And this is where Brandon Allen comes into the picture. Bruno's won zero fights by sub, lost six times by sub. Now, granted, a lot, a lot of them were a long time ago, but we just did see big bro Gerald do that to him. Um, and then he barely goes to decision ever. Um, but back to my point. What I was trying to say here is why why Brendan's my fighter to watch is because, like, bro, like, you had the middleweight division in the palm of your hand. You were about to – you won that fight against Hermanson. You're right in there, top five, top ten. Now you're fighting an unranked guy who is dangerous, who's hungry, who's got nothing to lose, and you've been knocked out before more than once, Brendan. And if Brendan's head isn't on straight and if he wants to, you know, talk in the octagon and kind of be cute, be funny, fight with his hands down, come in there with a mustache or something – don't put it past Bruno Silva to knock him out. But that being said, if Brendan Allen can come out here and pass this test, um, which is such a big risk, then he's going to be right back in there with the main event spot against a guy like Hermanson. He might even leapfrog Hermanson just for the fact that you're doing the UFC a favor, taking this fight, filling out that, that slot on the card. You were initially supposed to be the main event, but not, now you're dropped down to like the featured bout or something like that. Like You're doing us favors, kids. We, we respect it. So now let's see if you capitalize on it. So for that reason, Andrew, Brendan Allen is my fighter to watch. Love it. So, Andrew, we did it. We broke down the whole card. It's going on this Saturday night. You said it's afternoon, actually, though, right? Yeah, I think the prelims start at noon. Shit. Well, damn. So... This afternoon is going down in Jacksonville, Florida, Taporia, Emmett. Y'all make sure you follow my guy, Andrew Gombas, at Bets and Picks MMA. Andrew, any last message for the fans before we get out of here? No, thank you for having me on. Thank you guys for watching, and uh, hopefully we'll do it again sometime soon. You know we will, for sure. Uh, to all the fans, thank you all so much for all your support. Truly, truly means a lot. Like I said, Hit the like button. If you're not subscribed, please subscribe. When this is over, leave me a comment. Make sure you all follow Andrew. Um, got all his stuff in the description as far as his Twitter handle and whatnot, and he's got all his links up there. So, guys, thanks again. This Friday, Technique of the Week dropping. Got a really good one with a great guest, so I can't wait for that. And then PFL Friday night, uh, UFC Saturday. If you all are going to be at PFL, and you see me, don't hesitate to say what's up. I've met a lot of cool people from MMA Twitter the last few uh, PFL events, and I look forward to meeting more of you. So thanks again, everybody. Thanks, Andrew, for joining me. And until the next time, let's cash these bets.